Welcome to Murder Most Foul, a podcast devoted to exploring famous murder cases of our time. Some solved, some unsolved, but all fascinating and guaranteed to raise the hairs on the back of your neck. I'm your host, Jim Solonowski. Today's episode... Beyond Suspicion. Beyond Suspicion. Hiding in Plain Sight. Two phrases that have been used to describe countless serial murderers, that is, before they are caught. Many have mundane existences that allow them to remain under the radar throughout their reign of terror. But not Russell Williams, who was by night a rapist and killer, but his day job was that of a colonel in the Canadian Air Force, tasked with flying world dignitaries around Canada, including Queen Elizabeth II and President Clinton. Listen in as I interview author Ellen R. Warren, and we try to unravel this fascinating case of deception and depravity. Today, my guest is Alan R. Warren, who has written many true crime books. The, the one we're going to focus on is a Canadian murder, uh, which is the first for me. And the book is called Beyond Suspicion, Russell Williams, a Canadian Serial Killer. Welcome, Alan. Oh, thank you for having me. So, um, again, as I said, this is, uh, this is Canadian. Uh, it's not that different uh, legally or investigatively, um, but it is a fascinating case because the person is one of, uh, at the time of the, of the murders, high public presence, um, high in the, um, in the uh, service of Canada. And uh, so we're obviously going to back up a little bit on Russell Williams' life, uh, but it is a different case because it's not someone, as I often said, uh, that's in the shadows. He was hiding in plain sight. He was right out there, uh, carried on a regular life, and yet had incredible uh, deviancy that led uh, uh, growingly over time to murders, at least uh, two that we know of uh, that he was charged with, but much other assaults and whatnot. So why don't you fill us in a little bit about um, uh, the background, uh, early background of, uh, at that time, Mr. Williams. He had a pretty normal upbringing. He was a good kid, good student, um, got along well with most people. Um, a bit of a jokester, um, really nothing that uh, stuck out with his own behavior, so to speak. He was a good, good, good kid. Um, I, th I think one of the big things was his his family was had a different lifestyle, um, which we found out about later, um, because his parents were part of a swingers club, and back in the '60s, that was considered quite a um, controversial thing things were much more conservative then plus they were in a com con conservative community you know a lot of military and uh, government workers outside of ottawa so they um 
they kind of had it as a secret and uh, the parents would all get together and in one person's house and they would uh, swing and uh, the kids would all be put into another person's house and, and uh, you know, and that's where, that's kind of how his young life went. And as you said, his, he was a prankster, but nothing, nothing out of the ordinary. I, I was a prankster in, in his early school. And then I know that uh, uh, Canadian school is a little bit after the British model of high school is partly sort of college. Um, uh, but he, um, an interesting, uh, though only in retrospect, did people start uh, looking backwards on his life there that maybe something was uh, was amiss because at the same time that he was at the uh, the school, there was a gentleman who later became known as the Scarborough Rapist, uh, who was uh, you know a, a colleague, a, a fellow student at the same time. Uh, tell us a little bit about that case. Yeah, that was. Um uh, Paul Bernardo, Paul Bernardo and Russell Williams and um, some other people that uh, I got to know over this investigation and book were um, all friends and they'd all go to university together, University of Toronto, actually what it was. And they were taking, um, I believe it was some sort of accounting business sort of uh, program. And so they would hang out at the pub together and, and they were friends socially and at school. I don't, I don't think they were super close, but they were definitely friends. Um, well, this Paul Bernardo ended up being the Scarborough rapist. He would um, go around and attack women. He would blindfold them um and or be wearing a mask himself or a face covering so they wouldn't see who he was and he would uh, beat them assault them rape some of them and kill some so he sort of had the much the same mo as what um russell williams ended up having so it might be uh you know it's it's not like uh, we don't want to intimate that he sort of because you said they weren't close that he somehow picked up these vibes and took the same path it's just that then uh because of this case he in later you know his crimes that it was again sort of looked at again gee maybe because there were some rapes at the time i believe uh that uh, uh bernardo did not confess to and were uh, any of Bernardo's uh, rapes or murders, were they during uh, this time uh, at university? Yeah, yeah. No, it was quite a bit. Uh, it was during that time at university and, and after. So after university, I guess, surprised to, you know, some of his friends. After that, like all of us, you're saying, well, what, what do I do next? Williams, very, you know, uh, right, right up front said, I want to be a flyer. Uh, I want to uh, join the service and be a flyer, not just a crop duster, if you will. So he uh, uh, applied for and got into the the flight school for for the Air Force of Canada, didn't he? Yeah, he did actually, and it didn't. It wasn't very hard. He was a smart man. He was um, did very well in his class in all universities, and he was fairly good shape, athletic. Um, um, yeah, he had no problem fitting right in. He got in and he did very well and he moved up the ranks very quickly. He, um, was very good at what he did. And ultimately, um, he was commissioned, uh, his final commission was Colonel. So he's, um, he's in, uh, this is when, at least as things unravel, this is when he begins what some of us would term, to give it a term, deviant behavior, something most of us don't do in our daily life. And his um, criminal behavior started with break-ins. He started going to um, 
household households and he would uh, scope them out and he started breaking into people's homes and uh, he would go to the females bedrooms and closets and take a lot of their undergarments and even dresses nightgowns bathing suits shoes and take them home with them and uh, that's kind of where it started that we know about now, and aside from just, and again, uh, I do have to remark at this point that the book, which uh, I've read several times now, uh, uh, Beyond Suspicion, Russell Williams, a Canadian serial killer, um, is when we get to the assaults and the ultimate murder of two uh, women, uh, it's very graphic. The book is graphic. Uh, the, the graphicness of it comes from several places, uh, his own confession later, but also he videotaped everything or most of it and took still uh, photography and had it on computers and flash drives and whatnot. And in the beginning, there was no one there. So I'm assuming he was, he was trying not to confront anyone. So he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want to be caught. So he'd go in and do this. And he kept souvenirs. In other words, when he would uh, stay in there and pleasure himself with with this clothing, he would take, not necessarily all of it, but he would take some of it with him. And later we'll find out he sort of saved it in, in you know, uh, assorted duffel bags. Yeah, yeah. Because he would, so for every place that he went to, that he took items, or if he later when he started attacking people and started doing more um, violent acts, uh, uh, around these people, he would, um, you know, he, he, he would keep items and I'm not sure there's no real significant reason, the type of items he kept, but he would keep items and it would be from that break in from that, that attack, that assault or whatever. And he kept them separated. He also took pictures all, of all of them and, um, you know, and so, um, it was kind of, I'm not sure if it was like souvenir or if it was something to remind him of it. That's kind of the suggestion was he wanted to keep, um, uh, you know, some, some reminder of it so he could relive the event. So eventually Williams uh, graduates up to to assault when um, in ransacking uh, the house of Lori Mascot, um, he sort of stumbles across her that she is home in bed and uh, it progresses into a very serious and brutal assault. Well, that one he was surprised by. That one was he was still learning his trait, so to speak. His his big thing was not to be seen. He didn't want to be seen. He figured he could do what he wanted, and if they didn't see him, he he would be okay. So you know he would always cover his head with a mask or, you know, a, a full tube covering, or he would um, cover the girls' heads. And in this particular case with Laurie, when he entered the house, he um, threw her comforter. She was in bed right over her face so that she couldn't see anything. And his assaults as, as they grow, of course, aren't just power over the, uh, over the victim. He strike them. He, you know, would not, you know, he didn't want to kill them too soon and even kill them at all. But he did, in, as we progress forward, he's using violence as well as, you know, 
the control of, of, you know, he was obviously stronger than the women. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He was much stronger. He's bigger, stronger, big man, strong man, military, very athletic. And, um, and if he catches someone by surprise, you know, he just, he just jumps on them. And that, even his body weight alone would hold a lot of people down. Like with Laurie, she was in her bed and, and, and he was able to uh, grab her and cover her and, and, and almost suffocate her with her own comforter. So um, yeah, there, there, he had no problem uh, getting control over his victim. In this case, uh, he, he had the camera with him. Yeah, in every case, even even when there was nobody there, he always had um, his camera, his gear, so to speak, and that was part of it. Was a so a, he'd set that up, but then you know, in in a room or in the bedroom, or if he moved somewhere else, but he had that going, and 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 so there was also in all these there was conversation. In other words, there was speaking back and forth. Uh, the woman was not unconscious. And she, uh, in each case, she, there was, you know, depending on how, whether they were pushing back or not, there was conversation. Oh yeah. Yeah. He was very involved. He, he, um, he engaged with them completely. He had, he would, uh, eventually tell them what he wanted them to do and how to do it and where to go and what to wear. And he, he started giving commands. So yeah, he had no problem speaking. And that was sort of the problem with that first case with Laurie, um, because she could only go by the voice and, um, she identified the wrong person to begin with. And so that, that became an issue in, in that, this particular case as well, um, because they did have someone else in as a suspect and even arrested at first. So this this caused problems getting you know this case go further. And that that was Alan Jones in this case. Yes, right. So he was uh, he was a neighbor of hers. And also we need to point out that Russell didn't go far afield. He didn't go 20, 30, 40 miles. He was doing this close to home. So he was, he was also a neighbor. Was he not also a neighbor of, of Alan Jones? Yeah. Yeah. He was actually right next door to Alan Jones at that time. His cabin was right beside, they were two doors away from each other. So they were very, very close neighbors. He um, spoke with him all the time. They spoke together. Um, that what had happened was he had actually gone over there. Williams had gone over to Jones's place to find out where he used to go hunting. And he was going to try and set him up by placing parts of, of the body and uh, clothing of one of the victims there as well. He took uh a pair of Jones gloves out of his um, garage and a few other pieces of things that like, it was an old um, blanket that I think his dog used to sleep on. And he took that and left it where he was going to set him up. The, the thing you have to think about is that um, once someone in a small community like that is accused of, of murder and rape and they're arrested and interrogated, it puts a lot of pressure on them and the neighbors themselves, a lot of them believe that this person's, you know, somewhat guilty or is a bad person. So it really, it really hurts them in these areas. How long between her assault? So now we're growing. The next case is a murder case. About how much time elapsed between the two? It didn't seem like it was very long. He started becoming more and more aggressive each time. Uh, he didn't. Um, let's just say he didn't have a set pattern other than him trying to um, be thorough with, with 
who and when he attacked because he would scope out these places. Like, so he would go out jogging and looking and observing. And so when, when he finds a place, he would watch them and then he would pre, you know, break in pre to any attack and go through the house to see who else lived there. If anybody else lived there, he, he was particularly looking for any males to see if any men were around the house and that were staying there. So he checked the bathrooms and the closets and things and see if there was any, because he was looking to see what he might have to contend with when he broke in. So he was very careful that way. So he, he would never do his attack until he made, you know, he was fairly confident of who was there, what their ske schedule was. So he would watch them for a while to make sure they come and go. And, and now, and, and that leads us to Marie France uh, Camo and uh, who, like I said, uh, corporal, she was in the same business as Russell, and she was actually in, I, again, I don't know what the term of their division or, or squad or whatever. They were acquainted. They worked together, but his picking of her supposedly was not because of that relationship. It was opportunity or whatever drew him to have her be the next victim. Yeah, yeah. He was aware of her because he had assigned her on one of his duties of flying a, a dignitary. Uh, I believe it was something to do with Iran um, and a leader there and back and forth to Canada. And and so they had some history with with work and they were in the same squadron. You're right. He was a commander and she was a corporal. So she had she would take assignments from him. They weren't like side by side, but they had flown on one plane together on one project that they did. So they were definitely acquaintance uh, of each other, but I don't think they were um, much more than that at that time. Now, Dave, do we know whether she, again, as with the case of Lori, was she asleep when he attacked her or was, was he, did he pop out of a bathroom or how did the initial encounter well, he actually um, snuck into the basement and was waiting down there because he would wait and um, wait for them to go to bed, wait for them to be in a vulnerable position, let's say, where he would have an easier go of it, so to speak. And especially with her because she was military and she was in good shape. She was strong, athletic, and had a lot of fighting history. So it's not like, you know, he the the more he was prepared, the better. So he was in the basement. She was actually on the phone, I believe, with her ex-boyfriend at the time. They had split up a while back, but they were still sort of seeing each other or hanging out, I guess. I think she was talking to him about uh, getting together the next day, a day because she had just got back from a trip and they were going to catch up. And um, when she hung up the phone, she was looking for a cat and she went down the stairs kind of looking to find her cat. She couldn't find. And that's where he was. And that's when he attacked her. And again, like like with uh, Lori and even more with the final case that we're going to talk about, the final assault, um, this did, didn't go quickly. No, this was a long one. He was um, there, there was a, a definite thing about um punishing the girl the woman that he was with he wanted to make sure that they um were assaulted over a long period of time he wanted to make sure that um um it wasn't like a quick kill he he, he got more out of the um assault and probably the rape itself and um than the killing 
So I, so this took a long time. This was plus she also put up a good fight. He had to knock her out a couple of times during this this the altercation, and um, and he showered with her and did all sorts of things. So he, this was a long drawn out process, so long, um, you know that um, it, it could be eight, ten, at twelve hours even at times. And to point out once more, in case we forget, uh, all um, let's go to the videotape. So it was all, um, you know, all is a general term, but it was videotaped, uh, com comprehensively videotaped by him. Um, and I'm sure I yeah, again, I can't think like a victim because I've never been one knock on wood while this is all going on. And if they're feeling hopeful that they're going to survive, that this is just an attack. They, I would think twice because it's he's recording this. Well, yeah, you know, it's going to be you go take. He's hiding his face. Okay. Yeah, he's hiding his face, but he but, also hadn't killed before Marie. That was publicly known anyway. So as far as she knew, this was an assault. And plus, he told her quite a few times that if she behaved and didn't did what she was told he wouldn't kill her so i think in a, in in the back of their minds probably they they believe that because at that time there was no known serial killer or rapist or killer kind of going around the neighborhood there had been some attacks but nothing of murder and 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 that kind of consequence so you know i guess it would probably be kind of a little bit of hope for her you know in right. her mind And um, I, as you, I think you point out in the book, one of your, your sources was uh, in the medical, in the psychological field, and sort of had a theory, at least, at, at maybe if there is such a thing, why he was doing what he was doing. Yeah, it's really hard. Like, it's the best I could do is get people that were in the business, and I used Diane Emerson at that in this particular case. And a lot of her thoughts were, headed toward his punishment of his mother because while his parents were doing the swinging thing in the in the 60s um, his mother met uh, another man she was swinging with and with that she ended up leaving the family and divorcing the father and moving away with this guy and this really bothered him and probably more so than we know and this sort of led to this um behavior probably because in the first incidents with with other women he was just he didn't even rape them he was just assaulting them and um had their face covered so he didn't you know he was punishing his mother in a sense without her face being displayed so there was that was kind of her theory and and there is some sort of truth to this because he definitely wanted them to suffer over a long period of time. And we should point out, of course, speaking of marriages, he was married throughout all this time to the same woman. Yeah. And she was, um, she was an accomplished woman. She was actually the, um, one of the CEOs running operators of the Canadian Cancer Society based in Ottawa. And so she had a fairly um, important and good job. And so she was not, by all means, like 
just a housewife, so to speak, not that it's just, but you know, he, she was a very um, active and um, intelligent woman. And she came from BP oil family. And so she was um, well-educated. She had, yeah, she had money. She had a good job. Um, so she, she, you know, she was very accomplished. So yeah. Um, what can now I we'll, say? We'll talk a little bit later about, about the possible uh, after the trial, the possible, um, Involvement, uh, speculation of involvement, or or turning the a blind eye, uh, but and we uh, took the activities and the sort of only not necessarily excuse, but you could say well maybe not is because they had uh, two residences to, uh, uh, and tell us how that worked as far as you know Monday through Friday and how far apart they were. Well, they you know the the the, the thing is. Um, when he got promoted and was at that base, they bought a cabin, so to speak, a smaller little cottage, um, and he would he would stay there Monday to Friday because it was close to the base, and so he and then come home on the weekends to their main house where she was all the time. She didn't come out to the cabin too much. She did occasionally um, when she was off work. I guess that would be kind of the scenario. Another example of the. The, just the ultimate cold-heartedness of Williams is that not long after um, the corporal was murdered by him, he eulogized her at her funeral on the base. Yeah, yeah, he actually spoke at the funeral. Um, he was actually one of the main speakers. And, um, and you know, it was kind of a combination. You know, he was the leader of the, of the base and, and that... Uh, particular unit so i guess it would be kind of a thing to do but it was it was kind of a weird scenario especially afterwards because he was there with the parents and held them and talked to them and he made a big to do of all this and what a good I'm, I'm sorry you said weird you're a writer can you not come up with a better word than weird no <laughs> this, this take <laughs> this takes chutzpah well it does and it doesn't because <laughs> I think in his mind, you got you know, you always put yourself in the setting. You know, I think he believed he was almost two separate people in this particular instance, um, and this is not so unusual because he was he had a big military base, he had a big career, and that was sort of one image and one person he portrayed, and it was sort of different than who he was at home. And I think a lot of people do this in these kinds of jobs. And of course, he's not done yet. He's got one more before he is caught, and that is a young uh, young lady named Jessica Lloyd. And this one, like I said, it's good that it was the last because he's getting um, more detached, and we'll find out in a moment how detached he could get from this particular crime. But uh, let's uh, let's uh, discuss Jessica Lloyd. Jessica Lloyd was another one. He would go out jogging quite often and, and kind of scope out neighborhoods. And he spotted her one day exercising. And this, um, for some reason, he was attracted to her. Not sure, you know, what it was that caught his eye. And so he started observing her. And, and after a while, he started catching on to her schedule and how she, uh, when she came and went and all that and behaved. And um, so again, like the others, he would, he broke in when she was gone, scouted out the, uh, the house, realized that she lived alone. And so this would be a perfect target. And so that was sort of the setup in her particular case. 
And um, so was it again a, a situation? Was it similar to the other two that he he broke in uh, and waited for her to sleep, or did he come in after he felt she was asleep? Well, you know, the, at the first at the first uh, uh, day he broke in, like I said, he checked on how he could break in. You know, like the sliding doors and some of the other things, and and he kind of got to know when you know, in what she was doing and all that stuff. So he, he, he broke in before she would get home, waited again, hiding. And, um, she, she pulled in a little bit later, I believe than she should have been. I think it was around 11 o'clock when she pulled in. And so he would wait until they got to bed. The house would got, you know, be dark and she was, um, gone to bed and asleep. He, he entered the room and saw her lying there. And I guess he was waiting to see if she, he, he tries to see, okay, is she sleeping or not? And he moved toward her and, and he would strike her unconscious with his, um, um, flashlight typically he would hit them over the head but just as he was doing that she 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 got up she suddenly and so he grabbed her and told her don't scream just and then that's when he started ordering her and told her that if she did what she was told to do she would she would live and then he tied her hands up and uh, um it just and that's kind of how it started and that's kind of what he he wanted to do was to get control of them and get them in the position um because he wanted to keep his identity covered and then um and where they couldn't or wouldn't escape and and again uh, the graphic details are on the book but some of the just basics that aren't graphic but strange sort of like a and i don't want to be facetious but a wedding photographer he would pose you know i want you on your side i want you on your back i want your legs raised and he and he'd make sure that's the way he liked it and then make sure the camera was positioned to see everything and then do some sexual act. Yeah, yeah, he had he had things in his mind of of he wanted to how he wanted to take their picture because even in this particular case too with Jessica even he wouldn't would even stop her when she's when he's walking her down the hall because he wanted to get all sorts of pictures from all sorts of angles doing all sorts of things. Again, it's really it's it's hard for me to identify exactly what he was looking for, but he had something going on in his mind of what he wanted to catch on film. And then there was some he had a, a he had a, an appointment issue, so he wasn't done, and yet he couldn't leave. Uh, so what did he do next? Well, you know, so you're right. He he had only got so much of the job done of what he wanted to accomplish. And so what he did was he, um, he made her shower and then he changed her clothes, tied her up, threw her in the back of his truck and took her home to the, to his place, put her in the basement, tied her up. And then he took off to his appointment and his appointment was with a CIC, which is kind of a, the Canadian version of the secret service, because he was a pretty um, high ranking officer and he had a lot of duties that were top security. So um, he had to go for a four hour interview with the security, the nation's security team. And so he went and sat there, did that interview. Then he came back home and he went back to what he was doing with her, but now it was at his place. Um, and the unique thing about this is even talking with the security branch uh, and one particular person in, that I have in the book that did one, he was one of the interviewers. He also said how there was not 
a, an inkling of anything being out of place with Williams. So not only was Williams able to assault and rape and attack and take pictures for six to eight hours and then tie her up and then go in with no sleep. You got to remember this is all night. So he's had no sleep then go in and have his four-hour interview and then go back and continue. And they were not able to pick up any notions that there was anything wrong, like not even, oh, he seemed kind of tired, nothing. And uh, after this very successful interview, he does uh, return to his own home where uh, Jessica Lloyd is still uh, uh, tied up. And uh, unfortunately, he does kill her. Um, I think he and himself knew that he would have to to kill her because there there you know there was too many variables here like you know by being in his basement and things like this so it would be more than likely that he would have to do that but again he made no admissions to this um, so we don't know for sure but he did come home and he did continue his assault and pictures and 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 all of that and he did kill her and what and, and then he kept he took like moved the gun I mean, after she was dead he was hand you know hand uh what's what i'm looking for hand held camera uh maybe but he was taking pictures different angles or whatever either pictures or video of her dead body correct yeah yeah actually because he would he would hit her he hit her over the head with a flashlight and she's laying there bleeding out on the head and the as the pool of blood is getting there and stuff he would he would take several pictures of all of that while they were dying So we now, and he dumps the body nearby. I mean, not, not on, you know, backyard, but he, you know, it's not far. So he takes it out and dumps it, you know, in a, the, her body in a field somewhere and goes about his business, uh, you know, assuming, you know, what's going to happen. Nothing's happened so far. So, uh, but, in, so, but he does, before he becomes a suspect, am I correct that he um, decides to throw suspicion uh, on someone else and decides, why not his friend and neighbor, uh, Larry Jones, right? No, actually, I, I, I don't think he felt any heat. I don't think it was anything to do with that. I think he just thought because it was making the news now and it was becoming, um, you know, more popular in the sense talking about it, people were becoming on guard and it was, it was creating a little bit of a stir. He thought that he would take the, the edge off so he could uh, freely continue his behavior. So I think it was more about that than him feeling any heat. And how did he progress on well that's when that's when he took the gloves and the and the towel and the blanket and and started uh putting it in places near where um you know where he would put parts uh you know clothing of the bodies or clothing of of the victims so that they uh, um would tie it to the, you know, tie it to his neighbor and um, start investigating him and then uh, taking him in. And then, of course, it makes the news and everyone thinks, okay, the, the murderer's caught, the killer, the rapist and all that is caught. And, and then so the neighborhood kind of goes on more relaxed mode and he can go back to, you know, doing what he liked to do. You know. But ultimately, poor Mr. Jones, is, is, he, is he interrogated again on this one now? 
Yeah, he actually he is. He's, 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 they pretty much thought it was him. And so did the community. And it still affects them to this day, even though he's moved and it's years later. It's still, um, there's still people that think that were convinced he was, he was a murderer, um, even, even though we know he wasn't. Um, so, yeah, so it, it was very effective. And then um, the sort of the, again, it's all uh, police work. At that point, uh, they they get a, a clue that they think is useful, uh, uh, a tire tread. Tell us about how that takes us forward. Well, you know, what he did was when he would um, stalk, stalk these, these, these victims, and so on his last one with Lloyd, he, he was watching, and he was watching, and he parked his uh, forerunner um, out in a field. It was an empty field um, near her house. It was a kind of a lot, um, two lots that were open and no houses on it. And he had parked there. And in, even when he came back to break in and, and to eventually rape her, he also parked there. And um, so when he dragged, drug her back to his place, like he made her wear clothes and he carried her out, their prints, both their footprints were in that field in the mud, as well as his tire tracks. And so the police um, took that and had that on hand. And so what they did was started uh, doing just road checks, you know, so they would stand out and, you know, just talk to people as they drove by. And they would kind of, um, it was a facade because they were doing it on under the impression that they were looking for drunk drivers and stuff. So they would, how was your evening and to see if they were drinking and stuff. But what they were really looking for was the, the type of tire tread that the vehicle had left. And uh, one of the officers noticed um, that, um, it, you know, when Williams came through that on his way back from work, that it matched, it looked exactly the same. So, of course, you know, they were under that facade of, you know, uh, drunk driving sort of thing. They just let him go. But that officer reported it to the detectives. And therefore, so eventually they called him in for an interview. The interview slash interrogation slash confession, I'll be upfront about it, is on YouTube. And it is is one of the better because it's clear. The audio is clear. A lot of times it's so garbled. No matter what you know they're using as audio and video, one looks like it's a, 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 a camera, a phone camera, and the other looks like it's a regular camera on the interrogator. But um, and his name was oh Smythe, Detective Smythe, and and actually um, with him, and in that particular case too, um, what you see on YouTube is about. Um, it's only about half of the interrogation. You can get the rest of the interrogation through the police department, but um, but there, I, I've, I've watched it. There's enough there to watch an arc that oh, he yeah, does. Yeah. And as you explain, you give us the sort of almost the transcript of it or the description that he starts very relaxed. And because again, he thinks, first of all, he's a psychopath or a sociopath, whatever path you want to use. And so he's, you know, they're not going to get me. They're talking about tire. Come on, please. So I want to be, I want to show how helpful I'm an important person in the community. I can't clam up and ask for a lawyer. So I'm going to sit here and I can beat this. And his, his, his body language changes. And all through this time, 
uh, uh, Detective Smythe doesn't change, doesn't start banging on the table, uh, you know, threatening your, you know, you'll never see your wife again. Any of that stuff we see on Law and Order or no. at CIS. No. Very calm, but he knows when to pull back, when to make friends. At one point, uh, uh, Williams asked him to call him Ross not Russell. And so they get the, you know, the, the relationship going. And by the end he confesses. Yeah. Yeah. It took, well, it took a matter of hours. It was quite a while, but it was a slow process, but um, he had the patience, you know, to, um, to take him through that and to, um, yeah, it was, a, but it, it was, was a it was one meeting, one meeting, one, one meeting. meeting. Yeah. One meeting. And, um, and it worked really well. And so um, he does not um, go to trial, thankfully. I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But, uh, you know, if you're, if you're caught, you don't, this stuff, you'd rather it not come out. And of course, these tapes, maybe if, if it, again, in America would probably be played for the jury, these tapes and, and whatnot. But uh, so he pled guilty. And aside from that, you say, well, case confession, but he's got the boot, uh, the boot print which is very specific to, to, you know, soldier boots and the tire track. And then of course, through um, uh, warrants, search warrants, they find, as we mentioned earlier, these duffel bags that maybe I'm not even sure if it's individual, each activity or each encounter has a duffel bag, but there, there, there are several of these duffel bags with underwear and, and, and articles taken from a home. And, and then there's the, the, the video and this again leads us to wondering why the wife didn't know, and that impacts on her just a little bit. But he did plead guilty. Yeah, yeah. He just he just took the plea. He, um, uh, you know, to way he would go away for life. No, no, no trial. Nothing like that. Nothing like that happened. He just went to the court. Said, "Yep, yeah, that's me. Did it over. Away for life. Simple." clean and clean and done. There was no, in Canada, there's no death penalty or nothing like that. When you commit the murders like this, where it's first degree, um, it's a way for life. There's no parole. It's just a done deal. So let's, let's talk again, just a little bit as, as we get to the end here about the, um, uh, about the involvement of his wife. She was at least looked at uh, because people, again, they shared a computer. He had things on his computer, his laptop, uh, the bags, how could they be, you know, because they were in either both or in the house that, again, the only defense was why well, I wasn't always with him. Um, but he kept the stuff, you know, she did visit the other home. So whether it was in the cottage or their regular or their, uh, you know, the other residence, he must have had these things in both places in his computer with him. How could she not know? Well, you know, and that's the question. Uh, I don't, um, again, in the book, I don't. Um, I don't give an opinion. I just sort of lay out what, what we know. And what we do know is that she um, did share that computer with him, that he did have all the pictures on there. Um, he even had them shortcutted on the desktop. Um, they had, um, he had the duffel bags laying around the house. They were not hidden. There was a lot of things that um, if she didn't know, the very least was he wasn't scared of her finding out because he would have at least attempted to hide this stuff and not have it so so easily found. So who knows? Uh, we, we don't really know where it stands. I mean, um, she ended up paying out the lawsuits that had been um, 
you know, filed against him for damages to different victims that survived as well as families um, because the Supreme Court of Canada decided that she could be held liable being his wife. So she settled. To the tune of about how much Canadian money? Well, we don't know exactly, but I know he was being, uh, the the, the total lawsuits were just just over $7 million. And what she settled with them, we don't know. It's It's not been disclosed. So she settled with every, all the lawsuits, paid them out, and went back to the UK and hasn't been back since. I'm assuming divorced him. Yeah, she did file for divorce eventually, and it, and it did. And she is now officially single or divorced from him for sure. It's all done now. As I mentioned at the outset of uh, this interview, what drew me to this case um, was the startling fact that Colonel Williams was indeed hiding in plain sight in a very important and prestigious position as pilot uh, to world leaders who visited Canada, not the least of which was Queen Elizabeth II and Prince Philip. But surely they had their own planes, pilots, and security. How did Williams get the gig that continued right up to the moment he was arrested? Well, both in Canada and the UK, we have like a... um a system set up where it's illegal for for foreigners to have any sort of firearms or um, aggressive equipment like that. So what they do is they make an arrangement with, you know, a president or somebody from another country to come into the country with their security land wherever they're landing. And then in this particular case, Russell Williams was in charge of your transportation while you were in the country. So he would set up um, your, he would make all your plans, transport you everywhere you needed to go with his officers and with our secret service in Canada as well. Your, the secret service from America would be able to uh, be there as well, but they had to be um, unarmed. Know, yeah. They were supposed to be unarmed and carried around with, 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 uh, with us. Now, and, and to point out, not only did he arrange, but he actually flew some of the, actually was the pilot on certainly yeah. uh, oh, one yeah. or two of the were, queen. Yeah, he was the top dog. So if you were the queen or the president or anybody like that, you had him in charge and on the plane and everywhere you went, he was there because he was, he was like top dog. Um, some of the, other dignitaries and mayors and different other people that came officially to visit would have other military officers. He would still arrange it, but you'd have other people. But if you were the top, you were the big guy, you, you were the one that, he, you know, he would be with you. And this was going on, of course, because he's caught while he's still uh, uh, doing his job. Uh, so it's not after before it's, it's, it's in the middle. He's continuing his, his position while this is going on. So he's, uh, committing these assaults and, and rapes and murders while he then goes in and does his day job of uh, of squiring around the queen. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It just sort of, um, it, he was totally beyond the suspicion. Oh, really? What an interesting <laughs> title. He was beyond yeah. suspicion. Yeah. Hmm. yeah. It's a good name. It's a great name. Now, speaking of which, I do want to, as we close, I want to point out that um, Alan is a repeat uh, visitor to Murder Most Foul. His first uh, encounter with me and you folks is um, a book called The Killing Game. Clever title because it's about a contestant uh, who was on the dating game. 
uh, during his uh, career as a murderer rapist, and his name was Rodney Alcala. And so you can read uh, my uh, or listen to the podcast, The Killing Game. But what's also fascinating is you can go on YouTube and see that entire episode uh which is creepy he's creepy but it's creepy and he won the he was picked uh by the bachelorette and he was very smarmy in his uh his uh, answers which is part of it uh you know to be flirty and whatever double entendres so but then the the shtick is that I read later of course is that he uh you meet with a chaperone you're going to go on a sh- the date with a chaperone anyway but you meet backstage in the green room and you chat and set up where you want to go. And there's an out for the, the woman uh, that she doesn't have to go. And she just thought he was too creepy and she didn't go. So that book, you really should li- read it. And you should also listen to the podcast, The Killing Game, that you can reach through, of course, my website, Murder Most Foul. Well, let me just close with asking you, I forget, how did you get involved with this case? You know, there's so many things out there. You've written so many books, so you can't write about everything. How did, how did this one come by you? Well, uh, um, a publisher approached me out of Toronto and asked if I would do a short read on this because he was doing 12 cases with 12 different writers. And so I did. And it did really well. And he came back to me and said, would you do a full book, a full uh, book on this, not just a short read? And so one thing led to another, and I did that. So it was the very first thing I ever had published, the very first thing I wrote. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of, it's the original, it's, it's quite, a, quite a few years old. And then the new update it's been updated twice now. So, um, the and you changed. have a, you have a radio show. Is that true? Yeah, I have a radio show that's on, um, a lot of West coast feeds for NBC. So it's called house of mystery and it's on, uh, from LA up to Seattle weekly, daily, five days a week, Monday to Friday. It's on wow. 9 PM Pacific time. Wow. You're a busy guy. I just thought it was an occasional thing. Like I'm occasional. I'm not daily. Wow. Well, I'll hook into it because you can also probably hook into it and all your books on your website, which is alanrwarren.com. So that's A-L-A-N-R-Warren.com. Remember to put in the R as well. Otherwise you get an accountant somewhere in Fresno. Uh, so you don't you don't want that. Well, I want to thank my 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 guest today, as I always do, uh, Ellen R. Warren, uh, who's written many books. So again, pick up any of them. Uh, again, pick one. Uh, most of them, you, I think I got. I think I got Killing Game at the library. But there's Barnes and Noble if you want to own. There's Amazon if Kindle's okay, which is very inexpensive. I got a whole bunch of Kindle books. If you don't mind reading off your computer, I like paper, but. It's getting a little too expensive. My wife is cutting me off. So I can't go buying these books at $29, but I can download the Kindle. So you get them on Kindle. And um, you obviously on the website, you could probably leave comments, uh, questions for, for Alan and listen to his radio uh, program, which, I'm, which I confess I haven't done yet, but I will. And um, hopefully we will do this again sometime in the future uh, when I pick out another book I like. And again, uh, thank you so much for being on Murder Most Foul. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. In closing, let me just add a few small moments from the interrogation slash confession of Colonel Russell Williams.
what made you decide to, to tell me this tonight? Mostly um, to make my wife's life easier. Okay. Is what you've told me tonight the truth? How do you feel about what you've done? Like what? Uh... Disappointed. Okay. Let me ask you this: If um, if this didn't come to the point it's at right now, if for whatever reason you didn't end up on our on our radar, so to speak, uh, do you think it would have happened again? I was hoping not. So I'd like to thank you folks for kindly tuning in for another episode of Murder Most Foul. If you liked what you heard, I hope you'll tell your friends. Information about the podcast and an email link that can get a message to me can be found at the podcast's website. The address being www.murdermostfoul, all one word, no caps, no spaces, dot com. So until we meet again, Stay safe, and for God's sakes, don't murder anyone.